too many countries, too many cities, too many communities around the world are not being honest about the history that has, in, that has cultivated the environment in which their country, their community currently sits in. For the United States, it is racism. It is racism at its core. It is slavery at its core. I am so excited to have you all at the table with me today. My guest is one of my closest friends and one of the people I admire most in the entire world. I mean, genuinely, I think every school should be teaching about her work. I think every family should be talking about it at the dinner table. Jameer Burley is an activist, storyteller, and strategist. When she was just 15 years old, she reduced the rate of violence in her high school by 30%. Today, she is the head of youth engagement and skills at the Global Business Coalition for Education, and she's been recognized by the Obama White House as a champion for change and a 2020 Oprah Magazine visionary. In our conversation today, you're going to be hearing a lot about what inspired Jamira to act, a lot of her own personal story, and how powerful it can be to turn pain into positive action, but also what's continued to inspire her through this movement and what she is hopeful about, even in a year like 2020. I really loved having this conversation, and I hope you'll enjoy hearing it. This is At the Table with Dr. Ela Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? So Jamira, um, we've known each other a while, and the first thing I'm going to ask you is how you're feeling today. You had to tell me in two words. Oh, two words. Um, I would say nervous, but also curious. So nervous about what? I think I'm nervous about the state of the world. Um, I think, you know, folks, people, everyday people are going to be the champions. They're going to ensure that eventually we get to where we need to be as a country, as a, as a world. But I, I'm nervous about who we're going to lose along the way and like what we're going to have to sacrifice in order to get there. Well, but what do you mean by that? Like explain that. Yeah, I think in every, in every revolution and every uh, major change in history, um, people die, right? People die through the course of like fighting for their own liberation, fighting for justice. And we've seen in many cases, even um, here in the U.S. recently, where folks who are protesting police brutality um, have lost the rights of their, have lost many liberties um, because of them, their, their desire to fight for something um, bigger than themselves. Um, and we've also seen many times like around the world where entire communities collapse because of the dismantling of institutions and systems. And so, you know, I am conscious of the fact that we we want liberty, we want justice, we want freedom, but I don't think we have a full understanding of what is required in order to get there, um, even at the risk of our own liberty, even at the risk of our own limbs and life. I hear you. So I, um, as you know, I um, moved to Libya when I was 15 and mm -hmm. I worked and lived through the revolution there. And I hear you completely when, when it, you know, it becomes a question of how much are you willing to risk and are you prepared for the process, right? It's not just an action or a moment, it's a process. And for the past few months, people have been getting incredibly engaged. People have been championing Black Lives Matter. This is an issue you've been working on for over a decade, um, almost two now. 
have you felt like like it is becoming like people are recognizing that it's going to be a process or, or do you feel like people are excited by the moment how optimistic are you about this I think it's a collaboration of the two, right? I think folks who previously weren't engaged in this work, even five, let alone 10 years ago, um, felt like they, they didn't feel like there was a space for them to join the movement. And so I do think that there is a, an, an excitement about being a part of something that seems almost contagious. Um, to the, the same extent, I also think that there are folks who are just a part of it because to be honest, in this moment and within our history, it's cool, it's sexy, it's popular to be an activist. Like it's profitable to be an activist in so many ways or to be seen as a voice of the community. Mm -hmm. um, at that same time, I think we really need to question um, who's in this work for the long haul. And more importantly, for those who don't look like the communities we're fighting for, how are they, how are they questioning their own power privilege to assess how they previously oppressed the same communities they're advocating for. Yeah. So really the work is about both externally asking for systems and, and cultures to shift, but also internally, how are you perpetuating the same ideologies and theories about people who look different, who sound different, who move through the world differently than you, um, but yet have the nerve to still show out and protest and take pictures, right? So. First off, I actually kind of want to ask you a lot more about that in a minute, but before I do, I know a lot of our listeners may not know uh, really the history and the breadth and the wealth of your work and your experience and how long ago you started, why you started, um, and how it's really driven you. You're the first U.S. citizen who has ever been awarded the Global Leadership Award um, from Vital Voices. You're an MIT Media Lab Fellow. You've transformed local policy in Philadelphia. You transform national and global policies around the world, but, but your story really you did start locally. So can you tell us a little bit about how you started and, and why and, and what it's taught you for particularly for this moment, not just in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, but, but our, our entire kind of, I think, the, the entire social and, and economic and political reality that the world is going through right now. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, a part of me feels like I need to, I feel ready to retire when I see the amazing young people who are like at the forefront of change now. Um, because to your point, I did start when I was 15, which is almost 16 years ago, um, 17 years ago, if I'm being honest. Um, my sisters would say I'm, I'm, I'm basically ancient now. And I started because, you know, my brother was shot and killed in Philadelphia and I was living at a juxtaposition of knowing this young man who was 19, who was 20 years old at the time being killed a month before his 21st birthday. And then at the same time, having a father who had just committed um, murder in um, two states over. And so I was in a position of knowing both a perpetrator and a victim trying to figure out how not just, not just, you know, feeling sorry or feeling sad about these two individuals who both lost their life in different ways, but more importantly, questioning what the role of society is that have cultivated those those type of environments in order for people to lose their life um, in such a drastic and dramatic and oftentimes um, generational way. And as I continue to do that work, you know, it started off just focusing on gun violence in the city of Philadelphia, trying to give young people alternative ways to like address their anger, address their emotions, to address their toxic masculinity ideology. And through that process, I started realizing that the issue was so much bigger than what I saw in my, my zip code, what I saw in my city. And I started questioning more about what are the institutions, what are the cultures, what are the practices, what are the things that drive folks to do these things? Um, because again, humans um, aren't naturally violent. Like we don't, we're not born. I mean, there's a very small population of folks who are born empathetic. Um, who are born like sociopath potentially, but even still, I think there is something about society that enables that behavior without like addressing the mental um, problems of that, of that individual. And through that work, I started realizing that, you know, the things that were happening in Philadelphia looked very similar to the things that were happening in Chicago. And the things that were happening in Chicago looked very similar to the things that were happening in Palestine. And the things that were happening in Palestine looked very similar to what was happening in Brazil. And what were the, the, cultural, the cultural indicators that drove communities to cultivate those type of environments? And at the core of it is white supremacy, right? It is patriarchy, it is colonialization that has happened throughout the world that has enabled for us not to see the value of folks who look different and who speak very differently than us 
um, particularly in communities where they are the minority. And so um, I say that to say that what I've learned over the last 15 years is that solutions has to be both local in context, but also global in perspective, right? You have to consider the decisions that you make locally, how they impact folks globally. Prime example, the police officers trained in the US have previously trained police officers on Palestine, have previously trained police officers in Brazil. So they're taking the same toxic, illegal practices here in the States and they're infiltrating that around the world. And so we have a responsibility to not only demand that here for ourselves, but to demand that for folks across borders. So you were on stage with um, presidential candidate Joe Biden at the DNC, the Democratic National Convention last week. Um, and you had a conversation really about what the next steps are for not only the US, but globally, like what, what kind of leadership we need to really talk about inequality, honestly, effectively, not just for you know headlines. Now, if you were an elected official, right? Let's say you are, and you can pick which elected official you want to be, a mayor, a senator, a governor. Uh, the emperor, of course, the empress. <laughs> I know you could be all of them, but if you are an elected official, what would be your immediate next steps? What are steps that we're, they're not taking? You know, I think one thing that needs to happen is a conscious, a conscious and an honest redress of past misdeeds, right? I think too many countries, too many cities, too many communities around the world are not being honest about the history that has, in, that has cultivated the environment in which their country, their community currently sits in. For the United States, it is racism. It is racism at its core. It is slavery at its core. Amira, do you think the, the, that that's a conversation that the U.S. is prepared to have, that Americans are prepared to have, or that we're prepared to, prepared to have globally? I don't, I, I think, it has to be a question that it has to force itself to be prepared to have. No real change that has ever happened in history has happened because a country said that, okay, we're ready now yeah. at this date in our calendar. Like the people have to push it. And I think one thing I tried to bring up during the DNC is that, you know, I feel like for many folks, not my, my closest friends, I feel like we understand it, but for many folks who I interact with in this space and for even just individual people in the community is that we've lacked, we've lost the village, right? We've lost the understanding that there, it takes a community to raise a child, to build a community. Uh, we've lost our sense of collective responsibility yeah. to each other, recognizing that folks across the neighborhood or even across the city, um, that what's happening to them is our responsibility. And I think if we can get to a place where we start having larger conversations around what do we know to be true about our institutions? What do we know to be true about our countries? Um, and how do we start to see each other in a light in which we, we may not always understand each other, but we can respect and celebrate the individual differences because that's what makes our country, our communities that much better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I have to ask, you had previously mentioned that for, for you know, people who really want to champion your work for people who want to champion black lives for people who want to say enough is enough and we have to really kind of come to terms with our collective global history of racism and white supremacy and colonialism the fact of the matter is they also have to come to terms with how those systems have benefited them mm -hmm. can you unpack that a little bit because we see so many you know so many people are really kind of amplifying black activists, but also taking the mic and saying, listen, I know actually how we can talk about white supremacy. What is something that you would say to them? You know, I, I'm a firm believer that it's not always just the message, this message, it also requires messengers. So we need folks of all different hues, shapes and sizes talking about these issues. But we also need folks who are not representative of the communities to recognize that their role isn't to speak on behalf of those communities, their role is to create space for those communities to advocate for themselves. That being said, we shouldn't hold the responsibility of the oppressed to teach your family members not to be racist. So yeah, the hard conversations that I've always said to folks is that is the ones that happen around the dinner table with the, the people you grew up with, the ones you share blood with. Like if you can hold those folks accountable and your friends accountable, you're doing the work, but at the same time on the larger scale, you can't be the one speaking on behalf of communities and saying that you're giving these folks a voice, yeah. but you're sucking up all the space and opportunity. And so if, if someone is listening to this and, and they're, they're prepared to have some of those difficult conversations with their own family, what would be your, you know, you're somebody who has had obviously these difficult conversations, not only with family, but with friends. I remember 
years ago um, when you and I had a conversation that I think for you must have been like a daily occurrence and for me transformed the way I looked at racism because I was like I'm not racist I've never been racist and you're like yeah you might not be intentionally racist but you you've been created by a system of white supremacy you definitely have biases, whether you know them or not. And, and they definitely shape the way in which you treat other people. And I remember being so angry with you. I was like, who does Janira think she is? <laughs> and, then I, and then I actually, it took me, like I went and I sat with it and I was like, wait a second, that's, that is fundamentally true. You know what I mean? Like I have perceptions and ideas and biases having been raised in Canada with our history of colonialism, of racism, particularly around First Nations people, but also black people. Um, and, yeah. and, that, and that it takes an active amount of unlearning and, and genuine research. And so when you have those conversations and someone says to you, okay, what do I do if the people closest to me fundamentally, you know, not only disagree, but don't even see their own biases? What do I do? How do I enact change? Because they can't necessarily be responsible for their own families. What do you say? No, they can't. But I will say the first step is learning. You know, this the work of being anti anti racism is an action, right? It is a requirement of that a lifelong journey of learning, asking questions, being in uncomfortable conversations with folks who don't look like you, who are not always going to agree with you, and it can't just be with the people you call friends. Um, so it, for me, the first step before you can either st even start having these conversations with family members and friends is like, are you learning the right language? Are you understanding the complexity and the nuances within the issue? And again, you're not going to learn that overnight, but you can get to a place where you feel like you can have a productive conversation and also recognizing that it shouldn't be a conversation with your family members from a place of hate and, and anger, because again, there, there, there are a population in this country that are proud racists, or even in this world that are proud racists, right? That are that know exactly the views that they have are harmful and are untrue, but they still live by it. But the vast majority of folks, uh, similar to the conversation we had, have these internal biases because the in, the society taught you that, not because you you um you de you you deliberately or you um have ex you deliberately believe this to be true, right? Um, these are things you just subconsciously do. And so I think having a conversation with your family members around one, trying to figure out which one of the two buckets do they sit in and then asking them, why do they think the way that they do? Is that the way that they think rooted in actual facts? Um, is it rooted in a direct experience? And how are you using that direct experience to um, cloud your entire judgment of an entire community of folks, mm -hmm. right? There was a, a prime example. I remember having a conversation with a woman who um, who said that she shouldn't feel bad for like um, clenching her purse whenever she's around a black man. And I was like, well, the, the data actually says you are more likely to be harmed by someone who looks like you in your community than you ever are to be harmed by someone who doesn't look like you. That is the fact. So from when people say black on black crime, well, the thing about that is, is that that is actually universal. Muslims who mostly live with Muslims are likely to commit violence against each other. Um, white folks who mostly live around white folks are more likely to commit violence against each other. So I would just encourage folks to learn more, ask more questions, and then trying to figure out are people deliberately believing the things that they do because it makes them feel good or are they trying to battle their own um, understanding uh, within this world, not recognizing that they also hold these internal biases. Yeah, yeah. And so now, you and I have, have spoken about kind of the ability to create and propel and accelerate change in the past. Um, you once, you know, told me something along the lines of you can be the most powerful person in some rooms and the most powerless person in other rooms. Um, and that you, you need to be able to own both of those realities. So I have to ask, where do you and when do you feel most powerful? Uh, um, ironically enough, I feel most powerful... Um in spaces that were never designed for me. Like uh, being in, I mean, you know this, being in the international space, there aren't, there's one, we're oftentimes the youngest. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes the only women of color are women opposite of like the male, white male dominant space within um, the international space. And it's, I feel most powerful in those spaces in a weird way because you know, I know that they think that I'm inferior. Yeah. Even either deliberately or subconsciously, and I know that 
who I represent, the information, the knowledge that I have is valuable enough for them to invite me into this space knowing that they think I'm inferior. And so, um, yeah, I feel really powerful in those spaces, um, <laughs> to say the least. And I feel, yeah, I would say that. That's where I feel most powerful. No, I hear you. I actually feel very much the same. And I remember the first time I said that to someone, they were like, what? Why? You know they don't think you belong there. And I was like, yeah, but the reality is we've had to work twice as hard. We've had to show up earlier, leave later, and we, we've had to always prove that we needed and, and had to be in that room. And we have constituencies that they have no access to, experiences that they will never understand. And we can shape policies that are so much more representative of communities and so much more exactly. and applicable. And so I'm, I'm not surprised to hear that. Where do you, like when you think of your own purpose and you know, where you, cause I mean, you, you didn't really go into very much detail about this, but aside from your father, I believe 10 of your brothers have also been incarcerated, yes? Yes. And so you know the social justice system in the U.S. very intimately, both on a professional and on a personal level. And when you think about what propels you and what, what gives you that sense of purpose or, 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 or that power, what, what is it? Like, what really, what would you say kind of represents who you are as a leader? Um, I would say, you know, where I get my, my power, where I get like the most inspiration, um, because we need as much inspiration as we can in moments like this. It's actually through the young folks. Um, I, I, I used to have an organization called I'm not gonna lie. when you say young folks, I feel like you have aged 40 years. <laughs> Girl, I know. Right. But that's how I feel when I'm talking to like seven to 18 year olds. I'm just like, y'all are freaking brilliant on our porches and rocking chairs watching them walk by being like oh look at those youngins like <laughs> I know I told you I'm ready to retire you thought I was joking <laughs> like y'all ready to do the work say no more um no but I get it from young young people because you know I used to have an organization called Jim Why Not and it was it worked on the under the ideology that millennials were the generation that you know um always ask the question of why not? Why, was, why, why couldn't we have this? Why didn't this exist? Why was that happening? And I actually think Generation Z is that times 10 because they were born in a world where they had access to so much technology and information at their fingertips. Many of them were in communities that were so much more diverse than anyone's, I mean, at a much earlier age than um, many of us in, in the millennial generation. And I think their concept of, of of justice, of freedom, of of um, opportunity is very is vastly different, and just seeing the things that they have created with little to no resources, title, or access, that has oftentimes been some of the most transformative stuff we've seen over the last five years. But when you started, so when you started at fifteen, did you see a lot of other young people doing the work you were doing? Probably not until I got into my early twenties and I started getting involved in the more international space. Um, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I was doing in Philly, there was young folks that I had like trained and like brought into the work, but it wasn't, it wasn't seen as um, common space for having young people involved in community um, development, sitting at the table with the mayor. Um, and the older that I got and the more access that I got to communities outside of Philadelphia, I realized there were other young people doing amazing, amazing work. And I think um, that was also the catalyst that kind of made me start to realize and look at the world a little bit differently, more specifically my role within it. Because again, it couldn't just be about me and my city of Philadelphia. It had to be about, well, how was I ensuring that what I was demanding of my, for my community didn't hurt or harm anyone else? Well, okay, so what do you see your role as right now in the world today? You know, I started off as a youth activist, right? Um, now my role is a advocate for youth. Like my goal is to continue to pave, pave the way for young people to be the experts of their own experience, to talk about the issues in some of the most powerful places and, and how I can be of assistance either through training them, either through working in collaboration with them, either through funding their initiatives. That's really how I see my role. Like I wanna be a person that is known for um, for building bridges for communities to really represent their own interests without folks speaking on behalf of what community members want. So cultivating and amplifying that leadership and that agency in others. Yep. So I have a couple more personal questions now. Questions that, you know, I think most- Yes, I'm still single. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going there. 
<laughs> just wanted to get it out the way. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you're like, in case anything serendipitous might happen, it's just, it's okay. there. you never know who's listening. You know, it's true. <laughs> you never do. You never do. So Jamira, you and I in the past have had conversations about things like confidence and imposter syndrome and the fact that oftentimes um, you feel almost responsible for your entire community every time you walk into a room, right? You automatically, by being the only one there, by being the different one there, represent every black woman or every, or I represent every Muslim woman. And when you, when you give that opinion, you know every single person in that room is measuring you based on um, on your voice and, and your intellect and everything. And not just measuring you, but your entire community. And I do wonder for you in that position, recognizing kind of, yes, the, the incredible leadership that you've had paving the way, but also what have been some of the personal challenges when it comes to your, because it doesn't come easy, right? So have you ever doubted yourself? Have you ever kind of, have you ever kind of felt like you were, you know, in a position simply because it was good for the optics? Have you ever felt like you were um, being given space simply because you know people wanted to make themselves feel better? Have you ever, and, and what do you say to young activists now that do feel that way, that are saying like, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know if I wanna work in these spaces of, of traditional power or institutional power? Uh, sadly enough, I mean, I feel that every other day, <laughs> if I'm being completely honest, or at least once a day, um, I feel that way. And I think over time, I realize that, you know, I can get caught up in the emotion of that, of that space of feeling inadequate, of feeling like I was only given this opportunity because um, someone wants to sensationalize my experience or someone want to use me as a prompt or a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, but I've always thought to myself is, okay, well, how can I use that moment to for my community? How can I use that moment to get the demands that I want across? How can I use that moment to get access? Sometimes it, sometimes it's worth it, other times it's not. And I think the older you get and the more, unfortunately, the more experience you get in, in navigating those spaces, because some, I mean, people can only give you so much advice, some things you have to experience directly um, in order to figure out what's best for you. Um, and I think the, the more experience I got navigating traditional institutions of power, both on the local and global level, I started to be able to um, evaluate the cost benefit analysis, um, create a cost benefit analysis, right? Like whether or not an opportunity, a job, a speaking engagement made the most sense or was it just used for optics? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's every other day, <laughs> I probably feel some level of like insecurity about, um, struggling with whether or not I am worthy of the things that I've been offered and, and given space to. Um, and it's even harder because, you know, I, I am in a very weird space in this world where I sit at the intersection of kind of poverty and privilege, right? Because of how I've been an advocate and, and been in this space for so long, I've been in some of the, I've, I've been to the White House. I've been to some of the most expensive countries in the world and I've interacted with world leaders, but at the same time, my family still lives in the community that I grew up in, in poverty. And so I'm constantly trying to navigate two worlds where I feel out of place in both and feel um, I'm a sellout in one and actually a sellout in both because I can never fully be my true self while also trying to figure out what that even means. So I actually... Um... I love that idea of your true self and this idea that somehow, because it's, it's something where kind of sold, it's perpetuated all the time that you have to fit into a box, right? That you have to fit into a community that you have to fit into. Um, and you have talked a little bit about straddling, straddling the line between them, but this idea of sellout, what does that mean? <sighs> For me, it's, the sellout is not even something I perpetuate on myself. It's oftentimes it's things that I know folks are perpetuating about me. Um, not large groups, but you know, some of it is out of like jealousy because I'm giving something that they're not. Another part of it is out of, um, you know, fear, right? Because I, when I, I always tell people all the time is that, you know, I am definitely not the smartest from my community. I am definitely not the prettiest. I'm not the wealthiest, but what I, I was the luckiest. I, I was able to use what had happened to me and through that experience, given opportunities at very unique stages of my life. And I think that's one thing I'm constantly pushing against is like 
telling folks that, you know, the idea that the bootstrap mentality doesn't actually make sense um, because it actually it overlooks the fact that there are folks in communities um, that don't survive even if, um, don't survive because they don't even have bootstraps to begin with. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. But yeah, I do think the sellout mentality is more so feeling like, um, feeling like people are putting that on you. Yeah. Putting it on me, but also just feeling like at no time, like the community that I come from, I am no longer that person and not in a, not in a sense of like, I didn't grow up there. I didn't experience it, but my mindset because I've had opportunities is not there. Even though I love those people, I advocate for those people. And at the same time, the space that I've now been given access to, I'm also not there. I'm not, I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not privileged enough. And so how do I balance still showing up to some level authentically enough, but recognizing that I still have to hold a part of me back because it doesn't, it doesn't fit into that space. And it, and it was never meant to. Yeah. Exactly. So my, I have one, this entire conversation, I have one problem with one thing you've said, Jamira, which is that you were just lucky. I mean, that's not true. That's not true. You worked incredibly hard. You're brilliant. Right. And so I think, and, and the one thing I actually will say more than anything is you were courageous. You stood up in a community where it was life and death to stand up and speak out against something that people assumed you and your family and your, your community were somehow deserved. Right. And so I don't think it's just luck. I'm just, I just, I have to mention that, but I also have to ask, do you, do you view yourself as courageous? Like, do you, like what, when you go back even now, like, do you genuinely think, yeah, it was luck. I did some good things, but you know, these opportunities were there. Do you see the impact and power of your work and of, of the courage you've had? Um, I mean, yes and no. I think I'm always more encouraged by, I don't know how to explain it. Um, I think to some level, I do believe I've been impactful. Like I've, I've seen, I, know, I, I, can, I can name the things, right? But at the same time, I don't think I could ever see myself as successful or as like truly taking advantage of the opportunities that I've been gifted because of the moments in which I've been courageous, to your point, until my family and to my community is out of the circumstances in which they still live. Like, I don't think I can fully feel like I've, I've, I've arrived until those folks are no longer suffering. And that's something that I'm constantly trying to figure out how do I both enjoy life while also recognizing that there's still work to be done. Yeah, but you can appreciate that you are a leader, that you've been courageous, that it isn't luck. Yeah, I can definitely appreciate that. And it, took, and it takes, and, and to be honest, it's a conversation I'm constantly having with myself. But yes, in this moment, I can, I can believe that. And when did you first, so like, because it's a con, I, I've noticed with particularly a lot of um, my black, indigenous, you know, women of color friends, leaders who have completely shifted a conversation or the global conversation it is so much more difficult for them to like sit and say, yeah, I'm a leader. No, I did this. I deserve this. I know this. Um, uh, you know, I am, I have agency and power that is, you know, unparalleled in this space or experience or expertise that is necessary for change. And so when was the, and, and you've mentioned you've wrestled with that yourself. I've definitely wrestled with it. When was a moment that you remember where you were like, where you really felt it was the first time where you kind of were like, I'm a leader. Um, the first time you like really owned it, you know what I mean? Leader is such a weird word. Um, I think the first time that I realized that I had influence um, is probably, I mean, probably in moments like with recently just happened, right? I was able to speak at the DNC, but the folks who reached out to me, like my former principal, um, like reached out to me in that moment, made me realize that to some level I've left an impact, right? Or to young people that I've spoken at their universities, like I've left an impact. What did your former principal say? She was like, she wasn't surprised, but she was happily surprised. She said that I was, I was right where I needed to be. And I said all the things that needed to be said. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was it was it was one of the two messages that I've actually responded to so far. Um, I think some things are a little bit overwhelming. 
No, that was awesome. I mean, I was one of the hundreds of messages you didn't respond to, but that's cool. That's but cool. I responded to your emails and I'm on the call with you now. <laughs> oh, I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay. That's fair. I wasn't your grade school principal, so I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, but that was kind of the first time? I mean, moments like those are probably when I remember. I can't remember the first time. Yeah. And why do you think leader is a funny word? I feel like it's... I feel when I think of leader, I, you know, it's, again, it's what society has told us, right? They're normally white men. Um, they're normally someone who was an elected into a position versus, you know, I think I'm just, I am, I am a activist. I see myself as an activist and I don't, don't normally associate leader. I mean, leader is amongst that, but how I view myself as just someone who is advocating for something that should already be done. But isn't being done, right? Exactly. You are leading the advocacy. <laughs> I just, I, I would. I am a leader. You are a leader. I want more. I want more women to embrace that, like wholeheartedly. Because you're right. A leader is often kind of what we, you know, it's the CEOs or the elected officials, predominantly men, white men, right? And this idea that in order to be a leader, you have to look and sound a particular way. When in reality, real change happens locally and it happens globally by people who look and sound differently. And until we're willing to claim that title, then we're never going to be seen in that light. Agreed. So I think you're an incredible leader and I think that you need to embrace that more. Thank you. Um, so I have to ask, you and I have had in the past conversations, um, some of them have veered on kind of completely un- unlike understandable at some points about how we actually create and cultivate better versions of ourselves, right? Like we've talked about different opportunities. We've talked about, um, you know, different things we want to learn, different things we're tackling internally. And I've always found you are one of the first people I go to when I, when I want to better understand what I'm doing wrong, like what I, what I could work on in many ways, because I feel like you really mastered the ability to be self-reflective on um, what some of your own challenges are, but then how to actually unlock that better version of yourself. You are one of the very few people, I think, that, that does that so effectively and with so much humility. So how do we, how do we be honest with ourselves first, but then how do we actually unlock that better version of ourselves? Um, two things. I think first recognizing that you're a work in progress, right? You're never going to be the final version of yourself until the day, until the moment that you die. Um, realistically, right? We're constantly changing, we're evolving and like giving yourself the space and the grace for change, um, and to be wrong and to improve your, your own self. And I think that has always been helpful. And I learned that really early on by many of my mentors who, um, always, so it's so funny. So I once was interviewing for a job and they asked for a reference and my mentor told them that I was teachable. And at first I was very offended because um, it made me seem like, oh, like, I don't know. It made me seem like I'm a robot, but she actually told me that I'm teachable in the sense that like I listen, I respond, I take into what people are saying and I evaluate whether or not it makes sense or whether or not there's more to, more questions to be asked. And so I think folks need to allow themselves to be teachable not saying you have to change all your opinions, but allow yourself the, the possibility that you could be wrong and that there's more to life. Um, the second thing I will say is, you know, recognizing that the world is bigger than just you and your community. And um, there's a greater responsibility that we all have to, um, to fight and to, uh, to advocate for those who are both around the corner, but also around the world. And I think once we start to realize the larger picture, we start to um, see ourselves as, a, as, as an important role, but also a very small role in the grand scheme of things. And I think that takes some of the pressure off of feeling like you have to do everything for everyone. So what do you still, like right now, what do you still kind of fear? Like, I'm going to re-ask this question because there's two questions I kind of want to ask you. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is what you're still kind of afraid of or what you're still kind of like working on, if that makes sense, not just in yourself, but in your community. Um, but then also how you approach, like how, so I get it. I get like severe. I'll start asking now because I just think it'll make more sense. So I get, um, 
anxiety when I start kind of thinking of just the multitude of things that need to be done, both in terms of like that internal course correction, but also externally, right? Like, you know, you've been doing this work for 15 years and, and now, you know, this kind of global momentum is happening, but, but you've been doing the work for 15 years without, without this kind of um, validation, without this, this, this public, you know, affirmation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. All of this, this fight that you've had in you, all of, this, all of the experiences, the strategies, everything that you've been teaching, everything that you've been leading, it's now really just coming to light. And so I wonder first how that's kind of made you feel, you know, knowing that, yes, that it's been 15 years, but in those 15 years, you know, sometimes it gets really quiet, right? You don't have a lot of people who are, who are cheering on and not a lot of people are joining you at the protests. And that makes me, you know, I know in my own work can make me very anxious. It can make me feel like, okay, this is just an uphill battle. We're never going to get there. You know, we go up and then it, we just roll right back down again. How do you, how do you deal with that? Um, it's an interesting question because, you know, it, a part of me feels frustrated, right? Because again, we don't do this work for recognition, but it frustrates you when you've been doing it for so long and it wasn't sexy. Um, there wasn't a lot of money in, in the space. Um, there wasn't brands um, elevating folks and, and creating opportunities for them. And um, now that like it's, it's, in, it's in this particular moment, you see folks who show up for one protest and seems to be elevated overnight. And so it's a little bit frustrating, um, but I also realized that, you know, it's, it's two things. One, that's actually how the opposition wins. They win because they create this division within our communities to make us start looking at ourselves as competition, right? Start thinking that there is a scarcity of resources and opportunities and recognition. And so when I started allowing myself to realize that my journey looks very different than other people's journey, right? I've been on this path for 15 years. So my opportunities, my, um, my access looks very different in a good and bad way, or I guess however you want to measure it. And so I'm, I'm constantly battling, not trying to compare myself with anyone else at a time where it's really hard because you look on Instagram and it's everyone's like, you know, Instagram reel of their lives and the best moments that are happening to them. Um, and at the same time, I think trying to grapple with the fact that um, we can't choose when these moments occur, we can only be prepared for them. And so I've always worked in the, under the ideology of like, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And so I'm always learning, reading, engaging with folks, um, because what I have realized is that I've been privileged enough to be in the space for 15 years. So there's just things that happen or opportunities that come my way from folks who I met a decade ago that are that remember the impact that I made and are like, you should go talk to Jameer or have you heard of Jameer? And I think that is always um, pretty refreshing. And it means that I'm doing work that is, um, that lives beyond me. Yeah. And for you, like, so I think one of the things that's most remarkable is when a lot of this, you know, in, in May and April, you know, it was really kind of taking off. A lot of people were like, well, we're so surprised. This happened overnight. This really mm -hmm. emerged in these past couple of years, right? And you were like, no, we've been working on the ground for this for 15 years. Like we've been doing the work. We've been there day in and day out. Our communities have been talking about this for years. Um, and, and this is kind of when you're waking up to it. And so when you think about kind of all the qualities and skills that you've had to leverage to, to be able to create change, what do you think is the, the, key, the key skill or the key quality or that you brought to the table that allowed you to both sustain yourself for these 15 years, but also to envision that better future, regardless of what had happened uh, in your own life or in your own community? Um, two things. I think the first is realizing that we've been through worse. We've seen worse. Um, and people have always been able to prevail. And so recognizing that progress happens, um, is it the progress at the extent in which we need in order to protect ourselves? So that's one. I think that ideology, that frame of mind, continues mm -hmm. to push me every single day. At the same time, I think um, one of the key skills, one of the things that you have to learn along the way in order to survive this long 
is that realizing that change doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it happens incrementally, sometimes it happens in a moment's notice, but we have to recognize that what we're trying to shift, what we're trying to change took decades to enact, took generations to um, come to fruition, right? Racism didn't happen um, to the extent in which we know it to be overnight. It yeah. took institutions, it took generations of folks to do so. And so the change that we want is gonna take that long too. I always under, I've always worked under the understanding that I might not see the change in the world that I want, but how am I doing the work now so that the generation after me and the generation after that can live in a world in which they don't have to question their, their worthiness um, by the melanin of their skin. Mm -hmm. And so do you, like, I, I've always kind of, I think it's interesting that you, you kind of voice those too, because I've always, when I, when I talk about you, I say she's a patient optimist on the ground. And people are always like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. She just thinks the world is way better than it's ever going to be. And she's willing to like do the work um, and recognizes that, that she might not always be here when it all comes to fruition, right? And so I do wonder for you, what does, you said earlier, you can't call yourself successful. What does success to you look like? And what does success, what does success for the black community look like, in your opinion? And what does security look like, in, in your opinion? Um, you know, I think that is really hard. And I say that because, you know, it's hard to ask people who have never been free what it feels like, what freedom looks like. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something that I'm continuing to battle, even within the black community, right? There are folks that are like, we shouldn't, we shouldn't continue to accept incremental change. We need to demand more. And does that mean shutting down the government? What does that look like, right? Doing the revolutionary acts. Um, and so for me, I don't know what freedom, what liberty looks like. Um, I know what it should feel like. I think it should feel like I don't, I'm not fearful of leaving my house um, because of, of, of an institution like the criminal justice system might see me as criminal. Um, mm. I shouldn't fear, like one of my biggest fears that I told someone the other day is that I honestly can't have a child during a Trump administration or during, during a world in which my child could potentially die from foreseeable, foreseeable and preventable things like either crime within their own community because of community violence or crime against the institution that's supposed to protect them, like the police. And so um, for me, that's what freedom, that's what liberty, that's what justice should feel like is that I shouldn't be afraid to bring life into this world because of their, because of, because of the race that they will be because of how the world may treat them um, and how the world will continue to treat them throughout their lifetime. Even as simple as when I'm giving birth, right? From the moment that I'm giving birth to the time in which they can leave my home independently, they are always at risk. Even in the moment that you're giving birth. I mean, yeah. black women in America are statistically more likely to lose their lives in some states by upwards of a four to one ratio, right? Like four times more likely to die in childbirth because of preventable things um, specifically due to race, right? And, and they've, in studies, they've kind of measured out, okay, is it socioeconomic status, education level? And when they equalized all of those, a black woman of the same socioeconomic status, same education level, same everything going in is still at higher risk because of inherent racism within our medical system. Yep. It's, it's, you know, and I know you know that I'm just kind of saying that for, for a lot of our listeners who might not and might not understand, I think the scope of, of racism and how it permeates kind of every decision that you, that you make. Every single thing you do is all, is all based upon not only the, the skin color that you have, but your social economic status within this country and around the world. And for me, it's just, I, I don't want to participate, continue to participate in an institution or a society by bringing life into this world, knowing that they're going to be treated this way. So you, you've kind of said, okay, I can't speak to what freedom and liberation would look like um, because we've never had, you've never had it. Black people have never had it. Um, what would success for you personally look like? What would... <laughs> You've asked me this question before, and I feel like I gave you a half-ass answer and you challenged yeah. me, and I still give you a half-ass answer. <laughs> yeah. I just don't know, when, you're, when Janira Burley is 108 and she's sitting on her porch watching all those young folks 
um, as you say them, walk by and you, you know, what is the world you're looking at? I think success looks like, um, you know, the, the ability to build generational wealth, the ability to fully participate in this economy, um, the ability to not be boggled down with student loan debt for the rest of my life, the ability to ensure that my family has access to opportunities and can also build their own generational wealth, um, either through home ownership, through education. So I think that's for me is like a version of success. It's like when I'm a hundred years old, I can say that I'm, I'm not dying in debt to the society and that I've been able to build something for my family personally that will um, help to feed and clothe generations to come. See, that wasn't so hard. <laughs> okay, good. So I have one last, a couple of last questions for you, but one that I ask everyone, which is if you had to bring one thing to the table, to this community of listeners, what would it be? It can be a book, a person, an idea, a strategy, but what would that one thing be? So the book that I would recommend, which I'm sure you've read and probably everyone on this thing has, is going to have read is um, The Alchemist. You've read it, right? Yeah, I had to read that in elementary school. I didn't understand it even a little bit when I was young. I was like, oh, okay. This well, is I've read it six times over the last four years. and Every single time I learned something new. And I say that because I think at the heart of The Alchemist is questioning what we want versus what we need. And what we think will make us happy are, are oftentimes not the things that will make us happy. So it's forcing us to question and reevaluate are the things that we have internalized as materialistic things, as um, versions of success based on someone else's um, measurement, or is it actually based on the things that we really want? And so in the four times that you've read it, what's kind of been the, the most recent realization? Why the not? most recent realization is that I also want to be a shepherd. <laughs> <laughs> live on a farm and ex continue to explore the world. I think that was one of the cool things about the main character is like he was not afraid to explore spaces and places that he, I mean, he didn't have a map, right? He, he didn't have a GPS. And I think that's one thing I want to continue to explore about myself is like learning more about other folks, other cultures, because they all are a representation of who we are and the space in which we, we exist. Oh, I think that's awesome. I'm going to have to read that book again. I think the last time I read it, I was like 13 and I was like, oh, okay. Oh, and you're I, totally going to get it as, as, as an adult. Yeah, I had, to read, like, I had to write some crazy essay about it. And I remember just not being into it even a little bit. So I'm going to read it again. Now, what does being at the table mean to you? Um, I, uh, I think being at the table means that I've showed up bringing all of the, the communities that I'm fighting for and that I've also brought a community that, also, that normally isn't represented, right? So I never show up to the table without someone else from another, from a, from a, another space or issue that isn't currently being represented, if that makes sense. No, it does. And as a leader, like, you know, as a leader in your own right, what does it actually mean to invite others to the table? Yeah. Um, bring I, well one I work under the model of always ask for a plus one um and I think what it means is that one recognizing that you have a responsibility to open doors for folks behind you it's not about giving folks a handout it's actually about sharing your power which is what we're asking everyone to do is to share their power and so how am I doing what many people did for me legitimizing voice using my using my name my my representation to legitimize other folks to give them access and to allow them to speak on their own behalf without feeling like um you know as as a spokesperson for everyone and everything that is a minority and being oppressed yeah. it takes responsibility off myself too right which is the beauty a beautiful thing <laughs> you know we've spoken a lot about kind of the village raising a family about this idea of collective liberation right and this idea that you know we are living in systems um, that have been perpetuated for centuries, that have been created and built and shaped um, deliberately this way. And so how can we collectively shape our legacies to be more compassionate and empowering and thoughtful and, you know, yes, anti-racist, but also just more, more like overall more human to one another? Oh, that's such a hard question. Um, Cause some people are jerks. <laughs> but, 
it's true, right? Some people are just perfectly fine living their lives, thinking about themselves. But I think the vast majority of people do care about other folks. And I think um, if we can get one, I think it depends, right? If we're referring to allies in the space, I think the first thing to do is to recognize your own power and privilege, right? Recognizing what you've been able to tap into because of your your family money or your family's identity or your your the fact that you're white. Um, and, and, and in any world, right, you are still oftentimes the most privileged in society. And so questioning how, how are you using your privilege and your power and your access and your money to enable for other folks who don't look like you to, to also move through the world in a way that liberates them. Um, and, I, you know, it's not going to happen overnight, but I think also for folks who come from communities like mine, it's oftentimes draining to care, to even think about caring about folks outside of your own family because you're so overwhelmed by what's currently happening. Yeah. And I think if we can get to the folks, the point where folks realize that our liberation is tied up to the liberation of every single person in this world and that we can't truly find freedom unless everyone else has experienced that same level of freedom. It, which is why I've told folks all the time, I think I'm just, I don't understand how racist are not exhausted by for generations having to worry about black joy, right? Worry about how we're moving through the world. And I think that also creates a level of um, unhappiness for every single person. Um, so yes, for folks who are trying to figure out like how do they become more empathetic? How do they um, show up better for other people? It requires us to actually live amongst those folks, right? Actually get to know people um, that you normally wouldn't interact with. Um, that's why I'm always curious when folks are like, yeah, I'm an ally, but I'm like, you don't have any black friends or you, or you don't really interact with your black coworkers or you, um, or there's no one that you like. So it's like really reevaluating how you've, how you've cultivated and curated your space that oftentimes has excluded folks you say you care about. Yeah. If any of that made sense. <laughs> it all made sense. It all, you are remarkably eloquent. And I know like you've kind of gone from being that voice to enact change and like leading on the front lines to somebody who's really lent that microphone and that amplification to other people, particularly young people. But you, you're always someone who when you show up, you're right, like you always ask for a plus one. You always say, okay, who can I bring into this room? Who, who, is, who is the person that the people in this room need to hear from and need to, to learn from? And so I think, and I lied about that being my last question. This will be my last question, I promise. But why do you do that? So like you, it's kind of been the cornerstone of your work ever since I've known you. Um, when most people are just kind of thinking, okay, I need to get in there, I need to tell them what I think, there isn't a lot of space. Why has it been so important for you to champion other young people? I mean, because someone championed me. I wouldn't be here today if there weren't people who, who saw something in me and thought that my voice had value and thought that I, I should be included in conversations um, because I, of what I could bring and offer to the space. And for me, it's always it's I've, I've always operated under um, the understanding that that like I need to do what folks have done for me. Like I need to pass the torch, um, mm -hmm. i.e., which is why I want to retire. <laughs> um, <laughs> but more important, yeah. So it's it's I don't know. I think it's because I've also just grew up with a very large family. So I've always been a person used to sharing, used to um, like taking care and being very nurturing of other people. Like I have five younger siblings who partially, I partially raised, they are my babies. And so, yeah, I've always kind of been that person where it's like, um, who else should be here and how can I do what other people did to me um, to continue that same mentality. Um, and also my favorite rapper is Tupac and there's a, a one of his famous quotes, which I, real I learned at 13 which is you know I, I may not be the the person who I may not be I may not spark the change I may not change the world it's something to the extent of like I may not change the world but I will spark the brain that will change the world yeah and that's how I, I, I like to live my life no I think that's so I actually remember um now thinking back to when we first met the reason that I was so like drawn to you immediately was when we were talking and I mentioned that I had 10 brothers and sisters. You were one of the yeah. only people who did not look at me like, what? <laughs> you were like, oh my God, guess what? I have a big family too. And I was like, wait, what? And so that was- You just move differently, right? Like it's I mean, weird. It's so true. No, I, cause I was like, wait, but most people, when you say that, they're like, I'm sorry, how like from the same parents? Like what? <laughs> the questions get really invasive really quickly. And, and you were just like, oh my God, isn't it so, so- 
I remember that being kind of when I was like, ooh, we are going to fall in love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and I know. Jamira, where can everyone find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they learn about your work? Where can they invite you to come work with them on your strategy? Where they can, where can they invite you to speak? Where can they just like hang out and see your dog? Like where can people find you? Well, you know, I'm a firm believer of embracing your name. So I am Jamira Burley on all forms of social media, both um, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can find me at my website, www.jamiraburley.com. Mickey is also available at Mickey Burley on Instagram. <laughs> he's Paul's are too big to have Twitter, but he's, he takes really great pictures. <laughs> you're saying that you realize what it sounds like, right? I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I love it. I'm, I'm into it. Okay, thank you so much, Jamira, for joining us. Um, everybody, please follow her. Take a look at her work. It is incredible. Um, if you don't if you don't trust me, trust the fact that like Oprah and Obama have both said she's a badass. Uh, and I hope you all have an awesome week. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lambert. Thank you for joining us.